Today's Animal Spirits is brought to you by Masterworks. We all know 9% inflation isn't helping out with savings. A lot of our investments are down. Michael, I logged in today, checked out the returns on my Masterworks portfolio. I'm up almost 13% on it. Not bad. Hmm. It's kind of nice when something is actually outpacing inflation, not falling 10 to 20%. CEO Scott Lynn came on our show a couple years ago, kind of opened our eyes to the art market and collectibles market. I guess I had no idea how well real assets would handle inflation until we actually lived through some because we looked at history. We've never really done it before. Not bad. If you want to join us over at Masterworks, they said demand is soaring just as fast as inflation. Wait, what the heck? How much is your portfolio up? Mm, I got an IRR of around 12.6%. I'm 11.3. Okay. Well, I'm a better art picker than you. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> We've been partnering with you guys for years. Go to masterworks.com slash animal to skip their wait list. See important regulation A disclosures at masterworks.com. No, because you know why? My Pablo Picasso, my homeasis, hasn't priced yet. That's because that's my most recent purchase. So when that gets markup, I think I'm going to leapfrog you. I bought that too. So I'm at the same spot. Uh, I'm going to buy all the same paintings as you from now on. So you can't outperform me. Remember, massworks.com slash animal to skip the wait list. Welcome to Animal Spirits, a show about markets, life, and investing. Join Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson as they talk about what they're reading, writing, and watching. Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson work for Ritholtz Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. I know last week I opened the show, or maybe I closed the show, I can't remember, saying that I was not going to promote Future Proof anymore. I lied. I'm sorry. It was not a deliberate lie. I just have to share this with the YouTube viewer audience, this beautiful promotional chart that we've got. Is this a chart? No, it's a poster. Ben, what do you think? Poster. But it's online, so you can't hang it on your wall. This is very on brand with the tropical feel to the festival. It's got some pink hues. There's some purple. You've got me on a jet ski. You have Josh on one of those, what are those things called? Hydro something? Anyway, last call, last call. Join us at Future Proof in Huntington Beach, September 11th to the 14th. All your friends will be there. A couple thousand people, I think, so far. All right, I've got a question for you. Okay. Can we say now that the stock market was wrong as of this summer? I think the stock market at one point, we never know exactly what the stock market is pricing in. But it sure seemed like, felt like the stock market was pricing in an imminent recession. And now it's kind of saying, okay, okay, wait, wait, we overdid it a little bit. I'm not saying the stock market can't go down. It could and it, maybe it will. But is it fair to say that the stock market got ahead of its skis a little bit? Absolutely fair. Absolutely fair. Amazon fell, did Amazon fall 47%? It was over like 40, that? yeah. All right, Apple, we spoke about last week, felt, what did you say, 29%? 29% at the worst. So these are the facts, Jack. Apple fell 29%, and as we discussed last week, reported a record June quarter. That is a record of the all-time variety. And so, yes, clearly, Apple's and many other stocks like it. Now, the market is not a blob. There's things that got killed that deserve to, but certainly with the benefit of hindsight, some of the selling was overdone. Now, the question is, is some of the bouncing overdone? And I'm sure we'll get into all of that later. It's just a weird part of this because it's, everyone would love to have an all clear in a bear market. Someone asked us a question the other day in our inbox, like, how do you know when a bear market is over? And I don't think there is a good time to say it's over until you get back to all-time highs. But 
there's no all clear, especially in a situation like this where the Fed is still raising rates and inflation is still uncomfortably high, where maybe the stock market missed a recession now, but it could price one in for 2023 or 2024 at some point too. What if inflation has been slower to hit our pocketbooks because consumers were flush with cash and absolutely desperate to start spending inside? And what if inflation doesn't really show up in the data until 2023? And when I say what if, it's one possible scenario. That's probably the best way to think about this is that you should probably increase your range of scenarios right now to both sides because Four. I think more, more people are coming around to the idea of a soft landing where before everyone was saying a hard landing. I don't think that you can rule out anything between a soft and a hard landing. What would be better than a soft landing though? A smooth landing? Is that like the best case scenario? Or is that the same thing as soft? Is Jay Powell going to be Captain Sully Sullinger? just flying this economy upside down. All right, so we spoke last week about everyone. The topic of conversation has been the recession. Not a recession, yes, a recession, not a recession. Two weeks ago, we got the second quarter data, showed two consecutive quarters of negative GDP. But last week, we got the jobs report and further evidence of the camp that no, we were in fact not in a recession in the first half of the year. And the Dallas Fed... Put if together, you said, I think we're in a recession right now in the last fair, couple months, fine. you have to take the L. Oh, no, no, no. Nothing well, wrong yes, with that. Yes, There's yes, nothing yes, wrong yes, with yes. that. You have to take the L. If you said in the second quarter we're in a recession right now, that was not correct. I don't blame people who said that, who thought that was possible, but at this point, you have to take the L. Yeah, yeah. I might have said that. Who knows? I'm sure you could probably find me saying something along those lines. There's a few pieces of data. The Dallas Fed put together some charts showing non-farm payroll employment, as well as industrial production. And they went back to every recession from 1948 to 2008. And there is, I don't know, call it eight or nine of them. And of course, what you see in every single recession, for the most part, actually, what's that outlier? Is that 2020? Whatever. What you see is non-farm payroll going down, right? Employment going down and industrial production going down. And you know what is happening from December? The opposite. Yeah. It's not a fun economic environment, but it's probably also not a recession right now. But it's also, we could be going to a recession. Very confusing. They also put together a composite index of recession indicators. So what's in here? As mentioned, we've got non-farm payroll, industrial production, real consumption, real personal income minus transfers. By the way, there it is again. Real personal income minus transfers. I don't know what the minus transfers are. We're just going to skip over that, pretend it doesn't exist. I think a lot of people came to us and said transfers is... Kind of like government payments to people. So just say taxes. Not necessarily taxes, but I guess that was a way to net out like government giving people checks. And I don't know if it counts social security. Someone can school us on this. All right, whatever. I've, I haven't asked this in a while. How's the farm payrolls doing? But I'm... Um, so again, a composite of recession indicators goes down every single time there is a recession, needless to say. And that has not happened yet this time around. So in conclusion, no recession first half of 2020, no recession in July, at least according to the jobs market, 528,000 jobs were added in July, highest since earlier in the year. Unemployment is down to 3.5%, as you probably read last week, and average hourly earnings. Now this is the sticking point. Average hourly earnings up 5.2%. Which people say, yeah, but it's not keeping up with inflation, but that's still pretty good. Here's why economics is such a weird... I can't call it a science, a weird profession. Jason Furman, really sharp guy. He tweeted this, uncomfortably hot jobs report, 528,000 jobs added and unemployment rate falls to 3.5%. What worries me 
RE inflation is average hourly earnings were up at a 5.8% average rate in July. June revised up to 5.4%. The wage moderation we were all discussing last month was simply wrong data. It's bizarre that you say it's a bad thing that we're adding too many jobs, unemployment rate is too low, and wages are rising too much. To me, I don't know, call me crazy. That seems like a good thing. Now, I'm being facetious because I know why he's saying this, because this could mean inflation is doing worse, but these all seem in a vacuum to be good things to me. Wages are rising, unemployment rate is falling, people can find jobs. Yeah, but that's nonsense. Come on. Why is that? Listen, okay. Absent context, yeah, that sounds good. True. But here's the thing. If you worry that the job market is causing all this inflation, in January 2020, the unemployment rate was 3.5%. It then shot up to 15% from the pandemic. Now round tripped like everything else back to 3.5%. This really has been the round trip. No one was worried about inflation in January 2020. I know the circumstances now are different, but you can't say that all of this is because of, I know people are worried about a wage spiral or 1970s, whatever. But can you really say that the hot labor market is the cause of everything? No way. I mean, no offense, a bit of a non sequitur. I don't think what people are saying in January 2020 has anything to do with what this person is talking about. This is what the Fed is worried about, that the labor market is too hot. Why shouldn't they allow the labor market to stay hot for a while and see if all this other stuff shakes out? Because inflation is 9%. Okay. Everyone can complain and they still have a job and their wages are going up. I still think that's better than a recession because I still think the soft landing thing, I don't know. So the latest one people are saying is, okay, there was 11 million job openings. And the best case scenario would be those job openings just kind of poof, most of them go away. And yeah, we don't have true. people lose jobs. That would be great. True. That'd be awesome if it happened. That'd be difficult. That'd be threading the needle. I know what you're saying. You're saying that it's weird to see that things are too good, that it's bad. But I do also think that that's the reality yes. is that- This is the Michael Scott. Tell me your greatest weakness. I care too much and I try too hard. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're not an Avengers guy, but no, absolutely the, not. Jerome Powell is telling the economy to cool off, and Captain Steve Rogers is saying the economy. No, I don't think I will. Okay, I don't get that reference. They're trying to cool off the economy by raising so interest saw, rates. It's just not happening. I caught the Dark Knight Rises the other night. I think it was on Netflix. I put it on. That's a great movie. It's two different worlds. Christopher Nolan's Batman movies versus all the Avenger Marvel kind of things. They're not even in the same ballpark in terms of. I mean. You have to be embarrassed if you like Marvel movies more than the Batman movies, I think. I don't think anybody does, in fairness. Okay. The greatest, I think this is probably the economic chart of the pandemic era from Bill McBride. I think a million people have copied it, but showing that all of the percent loss in jobs, and this is showing every recession since World War II, has completely been come back in. And I don't know. Another reason why historical analogs are just really difficult right now. We've never seen this. Because we essentially created a recession and then we created a recovery. And now we're dealing with what happened from both of those things. I agree that trying to find, I still think the best analog here is World War II, but even that was completely different situation in terms of where we were in the cycle and all this stuff. People were still dealing with like the after effects of the Great Depression at that point and coming off of that and not a 10-year bull market. What if the stuff slash commodities, things that we consume, that inflation comes all the way back? You see crude oil below where it was when Russia first invaded in February. A lot of that is coming back in. And so obviously that will take CPI down quite a bit, but wages remain not just sticky, but continue to increase. And so CPI goes from nine to 
five, six. I mean, that's not a good steady state, obviously. To me, if prices are coming down and wages are staying elevated, that to me seems like a pretty good scenario, even if it's not 2% like the Fed wants. We'll find out. It would be really something else if we have persistent 5% inflation and the stock market just doesn't care. It gets to an all-time high. And since, eh, not so bad. It'll come down. I wouldn't stick my neck out either way saying, no, this isn't the bottom. No, this is the top, but neither would surprise me. And then on the other hand, we had manufacturing PMI last week come in at a two-year low. So you don't have to like look that hard to find. There is some softening of the data. There's no doubt about that. Real estate is softening. That's a huge part of the consumer mindset. We'll get to that a little bit later. Ben, you wrote about travel has been crazy. What did you see? You were just out. We love to go to Northern Michigan in the summer. It's Everyone up there calls it God's country. It's, it's just beautiful. Along Lake Michigan, Traverse City and Petoskey and Mackinac Island and all these places. And I have never seen any of these cities busier than they are this summer. You can't even get around. You can't get into restaurants. You can't drive through these cities because there's too many people there. My wife and I have been commenting on it because we've been going up to these places for years. And is this the kind of thing that will stick or is this still pandemic stuff that's wearing off and people are just getting it out of their systems now because they saved it up? Has this turned on something where people go, I really need to get out and do stuff. I need to make a more concerted effort to have experiences and these places are just going to be more packed than ever now going forward? Or is this just kind of a one-off that we're just squeezing the toothpaste out of the bottle? Well, how transitory is the demand for travel, I guess? That could last longer than people think. You would think that people get it out of their system and had their trips and they're not going to just do trip, 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 trip. But maybe this goes into 2023. I don't know. I'm booking my first Disney trip. I love Uh-oh. Disney. I'm a huge fan. I can't wait. I cannot wait. I think I've sent this to a few podcast listeners. Friend of the show, Michael Antonelli, sent me an email listing his like hundred things you need to understand about Disney. I sent it to my wife because she handled all the planning for it. It really helped us. So I'll have to forward that to you as well. All right. So right now I'm saying I can't wait. That's like the before experience. We'll see what happens. We'll see what my takeaway is. When are you going? Like spring break or? So we're going in February, which is. Yeah, that's when we went. President's week, I guess. And it is not surprisingly, it's expensive. So I don't know if this is normal. With This is what it always is. We're booking this with somebody who's helping us plan all of this. So the flights are around $3,000, like give or take, for four of us. The flights are 3000 I think the hotel is around the same, and the park is four. That's like roughly how it breaks down. So $10,000. How many days? We're going from Sunday to Friday, something along those lines. I would say making it out of Disney under ten grand is almost impossible. Okay. That sounds crazy. No. Is there a buy now, pay later for this? (laughs) And the place is packed. And that's why I was saying a couple weeks ago, you look around and you go, how is everyone affording this place? And I think it's credit cards. Oh, (laughs) speaking of some, you made a dig at the American making tattoo jokes. Although I guess- That's just because you want a tattoo. (laughs) (laughs) But you're right. Actually, I don't want to get too specific on the tattoos because I don't want to offend anyone. So how long will the travel boom last? I guess we will see. What is definitely not good and bringing it back to like, I guess, more real world stuff is volatility in the economy continues. And when I say the economy, I really mean like interest rates, mortgage rates. This is no good without getting too pessimistic. How does this not mess with people? How do you plan for business stuff when prices are all over the place? Cost of borrowing, delays. I still haven't gotten my jet ski, by the way. Still, it's a little surprising to me 
that the Fed isn't trying to like target some level of interest rates on the Treasury. So Lance Lambert from Fortune had this thing the other day, and this is last week. He said over the past four days, the average 30-year fixed mortgage rate went from 5% to 5.5% to 5.15% to 5.45%. That's four different days when the most important borrowing rate to the majority of consumers in America was just wildly swinging back 50 basis points every other day. That's like a stock market up 4%, down 4%, up 4% like that's happened before. That's like what's happening in the mortgage rate. I'm almost surprised the Fed just doesn't say, listen, we want 5% mortgage rates and we're going to make it happen. Whatever it's, that seems to me to make more sense than just let it vacillate this much. Because you're right, people can't plan anything. Can you imagine if you're locking in mortgage rates? I locked it at six and tomorrow it's five and a half. No, it's super, must cause a ton of anxiety, no? Yes, that's not helping matters. So the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta has this wage growth tracker. This is nominal, but man, this is really something. (laughs) I know people keep saying it's less than inflation, but this is a massive uptick in wages. Yeah, but inflation takes all of it away. Okay, but when inflation goes back down, are these wages going to go back down too? That is a very good point. But what if these wages don't stop going down and continues to push inflation higher? I guess that's the worry. That's the worry is that other things can come down. Wages are never coming down. This is my point about economics being weird. We're worried about people making more money. I understand because it's the cost of living. It's a push and pull because for 10 years after 2008, everyone was worried that inflation was low, but people aren't making enough money and we can't keep up because no one's making enough money. Now people are making more money, but inflation is higher. Yeah, it sucks. These are not real wage gains. But that's what I'm saying is you can't have both things. You can't have wages run really high and inflation be low. You have to pick one. That's Maybe true. it is more like 3% inflation and 3% wage growth or something, or 4% wage growth is maybe a sweet spot. But I guess we've seen both extremes, and maybe that's what makes people angry is the extremes aren't great on either side. All right. So more evidence that inflation will be coming down in the future months. From Liz Anson, there's shipping costs falling at an incredibly rapid rate. Remember all of this, like the ship stuck at port in Shanghai and Los Angeles. The year-over-year change in the cost to ship a 40-foot container from Shanghai to Los Angeles has dropped negative 32%, the lowest since the start of the pandemic. And then the big one, the big, big, big one, are gas prices. I'm just about under $4 here. What are they down for? Like 50-something straight days? I got to say, it feels pretty good. So Jim Batukas said, Goldman Sachs says, the immediate reason to expect disinflation is nearly 20% decline in retail gasoline prices since mid-June. By itself, this decline should it take at least one percentage point off the headline CPI for the next two to three months. Great. Nine to eight. We'll take it. Got to start somewhere. (laughs) Which it sounds great in theory, but gas is just as volatile and I guess could come back up just as quickly. And so it could take away and give back. We don't know. But yes, I think people seeing some help with the gas pump is probably helping. Here's something for you that a lot of people wouldn't bet on. So YCharts has this thing where you can put stuff in and then you have different time frames. You can do one, three, five, 10 years. So I did 10 years because that's the max you can do it. So I'm not just having fun with numbers here. Over the last 10 years, this is through August 1st. So this is before gas fell a little more. The US Consumer Price Index, CPI, is up 2.6% annually in the last 10 years. Retail gas prices, what percentage annually are they up in that same 10-year period? So CPI is 2.6% annually. What's 1.3%. So pretty much all... So they were falling from 2012... Obviously, 2020 was an outlier and they fell because no one was driving and oil demand fell. But all of the gas stuff. So I think that's what makes the inflation thing so much harder for people to deal with is that on a relative basis, it was just out of sight, out of mind for so long that now we've seen this rapid ascent in it because we anchored to these low levels. The same thing with gas. 
retail gas prices were down a ton and then now have shot up. Even with that huge increase, they haven't kept pace with inflation for the past 10 years. Gas prices are below the rate of inflation for 10 years. I'm just saying that would surprise some people, I would imagine. Yeah, I'd be one of them. All right. So over the last 60 days, this comes from at Gas Buddy, Patrick DeHaan. Over the last six days, after seeing the largest 60-day 60 60 decline on... 60. Is that what I said? I'm sorry. What did I say? Six days. 60. I meant... Okay, 60. There's too many numbers in this tweet. I'm just going to say gas prices have crashed over the last 60 days. The largest decrease... What is this? They fell by a dollar or something? No, almost a dollar over the last 60 days. Sharpest decrease since the GFC. He's also saying we just witnessed the largest increase in gas prices in a 60-day period ever going through starting on March. And we just saw the largest decrease as well. Yeah. I mean, listen, obviously, it will take the decrease followed by the increase, but this volatility in the real world is just not good for morale. Yeah. Another kind of round trip. Okay. So I saw this. People were talking about this. Econ people were excited about it. U.S. consumers' median five-year inflation outlook declined to 2.3% from 2.8% in June. So basically, inflation expectations are getting lower. Do any of these surveys matter right now? I feel like they're out, throw them all out the window. I mean, we're usually an anti-survey podcast, but I feel like asking people now to figure out what inflation is going to be or how they feel about the economy is just, it's nonsense and it's not helpful. Fair? Mostly. I guess I would just say it's just a sign that people are feeling a little bit of relief. That's Can all. I just say, it just looks so creepy with Warren Buffett with a shit-eating grin on his face over your shoulder. Who, this just guy? Right over your, yeah, right over your shoulder. It's just like he's kind of peeking over. Like, okay. I think that we've been talking so much on the internet thanks to Kyle, as we talk so much about vibes and how people feel. And I think, listen, we'll t- these are small wins. We'll take the small wins. People feeling a little bit less shitty. I think we'll take the small That's wins. Okay. Speaking of small wins, I was trying to teach my kids the importance of small wins and making their bed every morning. You start your day with it. You don't make your bed. There's no way you do. Zero percent chance. Okay. So you <laughs> start have, your day. <laughs> <laughs> every day I wake up, I make my bed. You know what? You start with a small win. I can't remember what psychologist I, I learned that from. And it puts you in a good mindset for the day. I usually don't believe in that kind of stuff. And I taught my kids about it. And somehow my five-year-old son, George, is making his bed every single morning now. I wow. told him once, he does it every day. And he starts off with a small win. Does it really help his day? Probably not. <laughs> That's big. It makes me feel better, though. George is going to be a motivational speaker <laughs> to his five-year-old friends. We practice writing threads, like tweet threads. We practice writing them out now since he can't type yet. He's going to be doing like 25 tweet threads in a row. Okay, but Ben, look at this next chart. So this came from Renaissance Macro Research, and it's showing the median three-year and median one-year expected inflation. And this went straight up, and now it's coming straight down, and that's not a bad thing. Is it just following commodity prices, though? Is this just showing what happened in the month before to commodity prices? Probably. I'm sure this follows gasoline very closely. But anyway, the point is, so the bigger point. If we're doing a Ben and Michael inflation expectations for Disney, it goes up and to the right forever. It never comes down. Yeah. What's the annual Disney inflation? It's got to be 8%. Okay. I got to send a picture. Duncan, I will have him put this in the thing. The best thing to get at Disney, you get a cookie that's as big as your face. It's like an oatmeal cream pie, but it's two huge cookies and a massive thing of whipped cream or whatever in the middle. That's worth spending your money on at Disney. That was probably my favorite thing in terms of food at the whole place. Listen, if there's an oatmeal cookie in front of me, I'll eat it. But a Wookiee cookie, maybe? I don't understand. I think there's a small segment of the population. And I know it's a taste buds to each their own. 
but oatmeal over chocolate chips, I just don't understand. Fair. I'm the same way. Chocolate chip is my okay. favorite cookie, but this Listen, cookie, give me an oatmeal cookie, cookie I'll it. eat it. I'll eat it, but I'm just saying I wouldn't pick it. So here's the bigger point. I think the bigger point is that this opens the door for the Fed to slow down and say our job here is done. And that is partially why, along with maybe positioning and chasing, that is partially why risk assets have had the run that they've had over the past two, three weeks, however long it's been. The market also, you try to set expectations. So we were on vacation with my kids. We had a nice dinner. It was my mother's 70th birthday this year. Before we go out to dinner, my kids have not had much time to be in like nice dinner settings for the past couple of years because of the pandemic. And frankly, because we have three young kids, we don't want to sit in nice dinner settings. We want to do order and go. But we had a nice dinner and in a touristy place like that, it takes a lot longer. So we set expectations ahead of time with my kids. Hey, guys, it's going to take a little longer for the food come out. Got to be good. Like we set those expectations and then 10 minutes into it, they're running around and they're whatever. That's the stock market. The stock market, like we, the Fed tries to set expectations, what we're going to do, and we're going to do this slow and methodically. And the stock market says, okay, fine. See you later to the upside or the downside. The stock market <laughs> is my kids at a two-hour dinner in Mackin Island. But you saw Bill Dudley and we spoke about Neil Kashkar be like, no, 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 you don't understand. You got it <laughs> yeah, wrong. No, exactly. come back. Come back. Yes. Let's talk about the real estate. Sam Rowe posted this chart. It is a percentage of borrowers with negative equity in their home. And- Starting 2011, so post-GFC, this was still very, very abnormally large. I wish this was like zoomed back a little bit longer. But the point is- Yeah, because 2012 is the bottom of the real estate market. So the point is that everyone is above water. Everyone is in- There is a huge margin of safety in homes right now. It looks like 2% of borrowers have negative equity in their home. Very small. All right. There was a press release this morning from Redfin- Redfin reports a growing share of home listings are stale as the market cools. The share of U.S. homes that were listed for 30 days or longer without going under contract increased by 12.5% from 54% to 61%. The first year-over-year increase. This is a good thing because- back to the pandemic. There's probably a ton of people who are still delusional about their housing prices and setting them at ridiculously high prices. And those are the ones that have to come in a little bit and stay in the market a little longer. And then once you see some price reductions, people will swoop in and buy them. Correct? That makes a lot of sense. Mike Simonson from Altus Research has this chart, the percent of properties with recent price reductions for U.S. single family homes, 37%, which is higher than it's been any time over the last five years at this point in the cycle. Obviously, housing is very seasonal tends to ramp up in the spring, peak I'll out. I'll give a shout out to Mike. Every week he does, because a lot of the government data for real estate is on a monthly basis. And him at Altos Research, they do it on a weekly basis. And you're following the home market and you care about this stuff, kind of like we do. He puts out a weekly series of home inventory stuff. And he's showing that people were worried that the inventory is just going to skyrocket. And I guess it's already slowing or rolling over a little bit. His thesis was, are we going to see a soft landing in housing, which I think would shock a lot of people if rates went from three to six and inventory doesn't just scream higher. Because here's the problem. Most people, the seasonally period, people like to buy in the summer because especially if you have kids, you want to move before the school year starts. When does your school year start? September. Okay. See, we're in like middle of August already. School is starting. It seems early to me. We're on different cycles. Okay. What are you seeing in your neighborhood? 
Are you canvassing? What's going on there? We had a house across the street from us, put it up for sale and sold in a day about a month really? ago. Desirable day, home? Pretty desirable home and I think a pretty desirable area, not to brag. And I was going to say, desirable <laughs> neighbors, not to brag. <laughs> yeah, right. No, but it sold pretty quick. And I don't know if they had something set up ahead of time or what. But like I said, I drive by a few houses that have been on sale for at least two or three months now that are on the way to when I drop my kids off at preschool every day that I wonder, like, what are these people thinking? Because that whole process, if you're waiting that long, is a very stressful process. And I'm surprised we won't see more price cuts if that happens to people. No, it's an exciting time in the life of a suburbanite. What's that? <laughs> when a house goes for sale and it sells and then you're like, ooh, who are my new neighbors? Oh, yes. Right? The people moved in yesterday. They had a big moving truck. Didn't meet them yet, though. I heard they have two kids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing for people now is, wait, how much did it sell for? And everyone knows the number like immediately. Did you hear how much it sold for? Over asking, like everyone knows that number too. This is why you're right. Zillow needs betting markets. That's one of your best ideas you've had this year, that Zillow should have betting markets on how much is that house going to sell for. Thank you. I would totally bet on that. The house across the street from me is way overpriced. There's no way it's selling for that. Or it's underpriced. It's going to sell for way more. You, you take the under, you're wrong. You're like, what? how did he i think that's a great idea softbank had earnings yesterday and this might be an exaggeration i paused a little bit maybe not maybe there's never been a more aggressive investor with size than than masio sushan okay softbank here's my analogy softbank is to private investments as bill miller is to public investments because bill miller has a comeback every two and a half years he's done he's toast he's back he's done he's back this is the same thing with SoftBank. But on like HGH, because yes, these are tens of billions of dollars and he's just slinging it. And he did this in the 90s and somebody they worked with, they quoted, they found Gary Reichel said, I don't think that Leopards changes their spots. This round trip of the gain and loss on the Vision Fund, which is basically SoftBank at this point, it's just crazy. I don't know. It looks exactly what you would think it would look like, I guess. But this might be the round trip of round trips. They blew out of their Uber position. They're doing some sort of synthetic forwards with Alibaba to raise money. I'm not quite sure what's going on there. But they invested in Klarna. They put $1.7 billion into Klarna in the first half of 2021 in an average valuation of $35 billion. I think recently that was valued at around six. They and Tiger were the poster child of all the excess and in massive dollar amounts over the last year and a half or so. You know what, though? People are still going to give them money. He'll be back. <laughs> yes. There will be a bull market at some point, and yes. But that you're right. That round trip, wow. That's something else. That looks like one of those charts that like someone makes up, like an analog chart of the Great Recession or Great Depression. It looks fake. For sure. All right. We're going to get into quarter earnings seasons. What do we have this week? We're more or less past all the big stuff. The only one that I'm waiting with bated breath is Coinbase, which I believe is sometime this week. We're going to start with Robinhood. So the big news last week was that Robinhood laid off an additional 23% of their staff. Bill Gurley tweeted this. We spoke about this. He never really stopped at 5 or 10%, which I think they announced a layoff. They did 9% first, then 23%. Okay. That's a big, big reduction. So Bill Gurley said, if you are planning a RIF, what is that? Reduction in FOMO. Force. Force. Okay. And Whatever, haven't executed yet. Please see this as a lesson. Robinhood did 9% in April and now 23%. 5 to 10% reduction RIFs are, quote, 
all of the pain and none of the gain and are frequently followed by 20 to 30%. But that's a psychological thing. If you're going to do it, try to do it. You can't start off with 30. No, I mean, you can't do it because that's just, I know exactly what he's saying, but that is harsh. Imagine being like, yeah, one third of you are gone. So Vlad, their CEO, put out a blog post on this. And he said, let me explain this decision. Earlier this year, we announced that we'd be letting go of 9% of our workforce. This does not go far enough. Since that time, we've seen an additional deterioration of the macro environment with 40-year high inflation accompanied by a broad crypto market crash. This has further reduced customer trading activity and assets. Last year, we staffed many of our operation functions under the assumption that a heightened retail engagement we had been seeing with the stock and crypto markets in the COVID era would persist into 2022. Obviously, it did not. The New York Times had a piece on Coinbase and went wrong at Coinbase. I looked at this the other day. Robinhood's market cap is now $9 billion. Coinbase is still $20 billion. Who is in worse shape right now, Coinbase or Robinhood? Because I think you could make the case that it's coin. If Bitcoin goes up, Coinbase will probably go up again. But here's the thing. In the first quarter of the year, Coinbase... Robinhood's in worse shape, definitively. Okay, here's the thing, though. In the first quarter of 2022, 90% of revenue from Coinbase came from trading fees. Don't you think the fact that Robinhood's already ahead of the game in terms of 0% commissions, that Coinbase is going to have to get there somehow, some way, eventually... I think you could make the case Coinbase no. is in a worse no position. Way. No way. Where does Robinhood's next customer come from? Where does Coinbase's next customer come from if Binance and FTX offer free trading? The announcement with BlackRock? That's where. Institutions, you think? Yeah. All right. Yeah, I would much rather bet on Coinbase right now. I think they're both in trouble, but I think you could make the case that Coinbase is going to have to change their whole business model eventually to account for free trading. And that could be a very bumpy ride. Somebody timestamp this 12 months from now. Coinbase is in a better situation relative to where they are today than Robinhood. I'm talking long-term viability as a business. They're both in rough shape. I think Coinbase could be worse. All right, fine. Timestamp to 10 years. Let's revisit this in 10 years. <laughs> I'm just saying I would bet on FTX or Coinbase right now being the one who comes out of this as the winner. Well, moving the goalposts, are we? Talking no. about Coinbase versus Robinhood. <laughs> no, because I'm saying Robinhood has already gone I understand. to zero fees. Coinbase has not. I get it. I get it. I get it. You don't think the market discounted that, punishing them by a 90% declining share price? They're still $21 billion company. Sounds cheap. <laughs> Morgan Stanley paid $13 billion for E-Trade less than two years ago. Put that into context for me. Well, you just said Robinhood is $9 billion. I don't know. Oh. $13 billion doesn't sound like that bad of a deal, does it? I don't know. All right. So what's going on with Robinhood? They're first now piloting retirement accounts with plans to launch later this year. What the hell are they waiting for? How is it know. taking so long? IRAs. That's their new accounts you're just looking for. In Q1, we extended market hours, so customers now have more flexibility to trade when they want, and customers have now traded over $9 billion in volume. Who doesn't want Dogecoin in their IRA? They've traded over $9 billion in volume during these additional hours. Extending trading hours, we view as the first step towards 24-7 stock trading, and we are making progress towards making this a reality. Remember when they said that most of their customers don't trade? What did they say? Long-term investors. Most oh, they're invest- long- yeah, yeah, sure they are. By the way, I still can't send crypto. They talked about the wallets, not in New York. Or at least not for me. I can't send it. Let's get to the earnings. Monthly active users peaked in the second quarter of 2021 at 21.3 million. It's now 14 million. I think that might be, I don't know if it's the all-time peak. I don't know how they get back to that number. Assets under custody peaked at $102 billion, now down to $64 billion. This is no bueno. The average revenue per user. That loss, so like a 40% loss, call it. That makes sense, actually. Which one? Oh, the assets under custody? Yeah. Average revenue per user, aka how they make money, peaked at $137 in the first quarter of 2021. It's now $56. Now, credit to them, the net income, or in this case, loss, has shrank dramatically. 
They lost $295 million in the last quarter. I know that they were expanding. If they couldn't make money in 2020 and 2021, when are they going to make money? Well, they were in growth mode. And by the way, we're going to talk about this in a little bit. Uber turning the spigots on. Maybe this is one of the things that we didn't appreciate is that these companies do have the ability, not all of them, but some of them might have the leverage inherent in their companies to turn some of the dials and say, listen, we were optimizing for growth. Investors were fine with us losing money. We are trying to get to a free cash flow positive and Uber did. So maybe these companies are able to do what Wall Street wants. We'll see. So anyway, monthly active users was down 1.9 million quarter over quarter. Assets under custody down 31% quarter over quarter. Jake tweeted at Economic. He tweeted, net deposits up 5 billion, but AUM down from $93 billion to $64 billion. That's an asset weighted return of roughly negative 35% in the quarter across all of their clients, which I don't know, not to like dunk or be mean, but that's what they were trading was down. So that's not a surprise to me. If you're buying crypto and growth stocks, which most people probably were in Robinhood, down 35% that quarter is probably about... Well, my Robinhood account was crypto. I'm one of them. It got smashed. (laughs) I'm one of them. All right, let's talk about Zillow. For context, in the second quarter, Zillow, which I'm not a daily user. That'd be weird if I was checking it daily. I'm a monthly user. I still check Zillow quite frequently. 234 million average monthly unique users, which is up only 2% year over year. Yikes, not great. For context, LinkedIn has 310 million monthly active users. Twitter's 330. Snap is 530. If you think about it, Zillow has a floor in terms of age of people looking at their houses. So I don't know, you start looking at age 20 something, early 20s maybe. Whereas Twitter and Snap and all these other ones, they start way younger. So I think the fact that Zillow's in the same ballpark as these, even though that they can't have any young users, like what young people are looking on Zillow? I think that's impressive. Yeah, I agree. Look at the numbers, listen to what they said. This is definitely not a good report. The stock opened down, I don't know, a lot. It closed the gap and is now higher than, but here's what they said. In the third quarter, we expect IMT, which is their like main source, that's internet media telecom, that segment revenue to be between $409 million and $434 million, declining 12% year over year. Ouch at the midpoint of our outlook range. This is a bit wordy, but I think it's important. Rich Barden, CEO, co-founder said, homes are even harder to afford today. Rapidly rising mortgage rates have compounded the existing affordability challenges created by unprecedented home price appreciation. This has driven buyer sentiment to a 20-year low and reduced buyer demand, which has cooled the previous red-hot seller's market. Across the industry, we are seeing price growth meaningfully soften on pending sales and new mortgage applications. Ultimately, with all these factors combined, the housing industry saw flat year-over-year total transaction dollar volume in Q2, while various leading indicators deteriorated. Another thing that they did that was interesting is, and I'll read this so I don't just bungle it, he said, the drop in stock price, which we've all felt has resulted in actual compensation being much lower than planned, and on higher compensation for many Zillow employees who receive a meaningful portion of their compensation and equity. And despite what you may hear, it is a highly competitive job market for tech and product talent, which means it's unsettlingly easy for a skilled employee to get a significant compensation bump and an equity reset simply by switching jobs. We've spoken about this, right? Best way to get a raise is to switch jobs. Our people create the great products and blah, 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 blah. It would be more expensive to recruit and replace valuable employees tomorrow than it will be to retain folks today. Attention and churn is an insidious barrier to growth, and by minimizing avoidable barriers, we are in a better position to achieve our goals. With that considered, we have made the decision to issue an off-cycle RSU grant 
to partially top up total compensation, particularly for those in the most competitive job categories. We will also reprice a small portion of the total outstanding stock options, those that are far out of the money. Makes sense to me. They're buying low or trying to. With the real estate market as it was, I know that there was a lot of challenges, but they probably bungled it as bad as they possibly could have for one of the hottest real estate markets ever. Did you see the Open Door partnership they announced? I did. Why don't those two firms just merge? That should have been the thing. Instead of trying to compete with each other from the start, they should have just merged anyway. Have Open Door do that for Zillow. I know that's what their partnership is going to be probably, but instead of trying to compete with one another, they probably should have just come together and done it as one, which I think is what they're doing now. Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know about the dynamics of how that would work, but one more thing they said is they're going to be leaning harder into a mortgage origination, and they are basically almost all done or will be in the next quarter or two with getting those houses off their balance sheet. So partnering with Open Door to do the iBuying thing. Open Door, on the other hand, had pretty good results. Revenue, $4.2 billion, up 254% quarter over quarter. I'm sorry, year over year. Quarter over quarter, they're actually down. Quarter over quarter, they're down about 20% or so, just eyeballing it. They passed 50 markets. They're now in New York, New Jersey, Boston, and Detroit, giving them the ability to underwrite nearly 30% of single-family home transactions in the U.S. So not bad. Stock is only down 84% from the highs. <laughs> Zillow's down 81%. <laughs> Gross profit up 206%. Uh, net loss much smaller than expected. There was a quote, though, there about a significant or steep slowdown in the home market. So again, forward guidance, or at least some of the things that they're saying is not Super bullish. Not surprisingly. No. That's you'd expect. All right, Uber. Numbers look good. You mentioned the thing about going from growth mode to cash flow mode. Jason Kalkanis was on Oddbots recently. I don't know if you heard that one. But he said his point about this was, yes, that CEOs who were only in Uber growth mode were doing that because that's what the market was saying, do this. We're going to let you have that and you're going to be rewarded for it. Now companies are be rewarding for getting profits and cash flows. But you're right. So like the companies that can pull those levers to do that, I think that's turning a battleship for a lot of places. I think that's going to be very hard to do. So Uber was trading at 24 bucks prior to the earnings release. It's now at 31. So it had a massive jump. But I mean, the stock has just gotten decimated like everyone else. Something similar with Lyft. Also positive Do you take Uber very often or not? Yeah. I hear a lot of people complain how much higher prices are gone. I haven't okay. taken Uber in a while. No, I haven't taken it in a while. I mean, I take it here and there, but not so it looks super, like super the often. Stock is still down 50% from the highs, even after a nice little jump here. I think it's By up the like way, it 50%. is Tuesday morning, and at least the NASDAQ 100 has almost taken back all of the pop from Fed Day on Wednesday. Whatever. Just saying. You call that filling the gap, Michael? No, there was no gap, Ben, because a gap happens overnight. Oh, uh, okay. NVIDIA. We actually spoke about this, how Microsoft's gaming segment, and maybe this is like Good news that people are getting out and are done being inside. NVIDIA's gaming revenue was down 44% versus the first quarter. That's got to be a record decrease now. Because all the nerds finally got out of their basement? I don't know. People actually doing stuff in the real world? Were there stimmy checks sent out over the weekend that I didn't hear about? Why? Did you see the meme oh, stocks meme yesterday? Stock. This has to be one of the crazy... Like, There's no way anyone assumed this could last for this long. Bed Bath & Beyond, we talked about it a few weeks ago. It's down 95% or whatever. It was up 40% in a day. What if the meme stocks are just a part of it now? They just happen periodically. I think that's not a crazy thing to say. But aren't we surprised a little bit that the market hasn't stepped in and crushed this stuff yet? Are retail traders really that important to these markets? Yes. 
Okay. For sure. I can't believe it's still happening. So in conclusion, earnings season has definitely been better than what was priced into the market. We can now say that definitively. And that was easily the most important earnings season until next quarter. Can we agree with that? It was the most important earnings season ever until the next one. And that's going to be the most important one. I take umbrage with your dismissiveness of this because- I'm not dismissing it. I'm just saying- No, 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 sir, sir. (laughs) The cycles ebb and flow. There are times where the market, where it's all about CPI. There was times for much of the last decade when it was all about non-farm payroll. Sometimes this- But my point was- This was a big earnings season. This was a big earnings season. But it was a lot of the perma bears were expecting- these stocks are all going to get crushed and watch out. And this is what it's going to cause the market to go down another 30 or 40%. And that's why I think a lot of people are probably disappointed that it wasn't worse. I think a lot of people wanted it to be worse. Oh, people are pissed that stocks are rallying. I think there's no doubt about that. But at the same time, there's like different buckets of traders and investors and it forms one sort of blob, but there are silos. And I miss this. Duncan, I say that to- Duncan, Duncan says, what? I should get a new bill tattoo. Where would you get it? Tramp stamp. Definitely. Butt cheek. <laughs> Bachelor. Jim Bianco has a chart showing that small option traders have cooled off, which, yeah, that'll happen when your stocks are down 80%. Okay, but option traders have cooled off, but we're still seeing the meme stock thing. That's what's surprising. because you- That's what I'm saying. Like You would think that it's like the same thing, but I guess not. All right. All right. Good tweet from Hunter Horsley of Bitwise. He said, working in crypto is an incredible, never-ending education in how far the pendulum can swing. 2017, BlackRock CEO Larry Fink calls Bitcoin an index of money laundering. 2021, why BlackRock is bullish on blockchain but not Bitcoin. 2022, BlackRock picks Coinbase to provide clients with direct Bitcoin exposure. By the way, if I had to like pick out some of my old quotes on Bitcoin, they would probably be just as erratic as this. Although I think saying in 2021 you're more bullish on blockchain than Bitcoin... That was a pretty good trade. That was a pretty good trade, right? That wasn't bad. There was a big story. I don't want to say it was big, but it got some attention about a pension fund that's yield farming. And I would have loved to be a fly on the wall during this discussion because there's a quote from the chief investment officer of the Fairfax County Police Officers Retirement System. She said, some of the yields that you're able to achieve in a yield farming strategy are really attractive because some of the people have stepped back from that space. So they put $35 million into this yield fund that's ran by Paratexas Capital. And Vanek has a new finance income fund. They put $35 million into this thing. But I just want to say two things. $35 million out of almost $7 billion is half a percent. So they're not exactly betting the farm, pun intended. And number two, they're not going- This is a pinky toe into the water. Yeah, they're not going from a 60-40 portfolio into yield farming. They had already been in crypto for, I think, several years. So good story. Deserves a little bit of cold water. The BlackRock Coinbase deal. So I think this is one of the reasons why Coinbase has the upper hand. I just think that if, when institutions come to market, they're going to go with a trusted I feel like we keep hearing this though, but it doesn't really lead to much. We see these deals, but then nothing happens. I know it's just planning the groundwork a little bit, but I feel like we've seen these kind of headlines before and then nothing ever comes of it. Well, there's a big one. Brevin Howard raised more than a billion dollars for its flagship crypto vehicle. It's the largest crypto hedge fund launch yet. What do you call a fund that's not a flagship? Oh, that's a good question. Because it seems like all <laughs> funds are flagship funds. Would you like our flagship? Nah. No. <laughs> give me the leftovers. <laughs> give, me the, give me the other one. Yeah, give me the, yeah, yeah. Give, me the, the, give me the one behind that. That's a good one. I want the guy behind the guy. Oh, we're running along. Let's move on to the recommendations, Ben. You start. Do the Counter Reeves thing first. I have some thoughts here. Okay. 
I was about to say, I've got news to report. It's actually Variety who's a reporter, not me. Variety tweeted, Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio are producing Devil in the White City. And Look the lead this. is- Look at this. I found it in my bookshelf. Not to brag. I've read many books. I have this one. The lead is Keanu Reeves. And did you I read this am, book? So this is I a book read, by Eric Larson. Yeah, you're talking about- yeah, What's going so, on here? <laughs> I got I'm excited about this one. I read <laughs> yeah. this book not too long ago. I don't love the casting decision. I can't picture that guy as Keanu. He can prove me wrong. I don't love it. <laughs> wow, an early zag. If you read that book, this guy is a supreme sociopath. I don't picture him as like a guy with a California dude accent. All right. It's got to be Jared Leto, no? <laughs> He's King Weirdo I think Leo, Leo would have been perfect. It was supposed to be Leo. Keanu can prove me wrong. He probably has the best Q rating of any celebrity in the world right now. Like People just love Keanu Reeves. I'm just saying he's not who I picked. He's not who I pictured as this lead. Okay. Well, I'm excited. I loved the stuff in the book about the World Fair. That stuff was really interesting to me. Yeah, it was good. It was good. Wait, is this based on a true story? Yes, it is a true story. Okay. Oh, speaking of true story, are you watching Blackbird? No, I, sorry, I haven't got into it yet. We're still finishing. I was out on vacation. I've been way behind TV. I haven't watched much TV lately. Well, I have great news for you. A, it was a great show. B, six episodes. All right. You sold me. It's next on our list. You know what is a great feature? People complain too much these days. They don't appreciate. Ben, if you rent a movie or if you're watching anything on Amazon Prime and you press pause and you've got the x-ray and it shows you the characters and the cast and then it shows you trivia, you can click in. Blah, blah, it also blah. shows you that? if there's a song on it, it says who's singing the song. Oh, really? Yes. It's the little things. I do like that one. All right. The new Predator movie, Prey. Phenomenal. Stripped down. No nonsense. You saw this at the theater? Yeah, I wish I saw it at the theater. It was freaking, it was only released on Hulu. I don't understand. Oh, so I could see this now. I looked at this. The last Predator, which was terrible, cost $88 million to make. Okay, so I poo-pooed this one, but you're saying I should watch it? Well, I don't know if you should watch it or not. I like these I love of- the, ori- the original Predator is one of my oh, favorite Oh, then watch it, then watch movies. it, then watch it. Yes, okay. then watch it. I love Predator, the original. Yeah, there's no nonsense. It was just boom right into it and there's a hunt. And it was just no nonsense. Right. Very reminiscent of the early one. But what's interesting is that, so Adam Neiman did a post for, on The Ringer about this. Quote, he said, the plan had been to market the film purely as a standalone release, a period piece action movie with Native American characters. The working title was Skulls. The Predator connection would turn out to be a surprise on opening night. The same tactic that M. Night Shyamalan exploited with his cleverly disguised unbreakable sequel, Split. Dude, if I saw this movie in the theater just thinking that it was some sort of monster (laughs) chase movie and I saw The Predator, my head would explode. Can you imagine how sick that would be? There's no way you could keep something like that secret these days, though. Probably not. Back in the day, we thought that Blair Witch, like people left the theater thinking it was a real documentary. That's how dumb we were back then because no one knew anything ahead of time. Oh, man, I love Blair Witch. How old? I was like... 13 when I saw that scared the living bejesus out of me. I was in camp, sleepaway camp, when I saw that. What year was that? 1994? Like 99, not that. No, like 99. Oh, 99. Why did I say 94? 99. All right, so I was 15. I was old enough. Anywho, a listener emailed me about a movie that he thought I should watch. Thought it was up my alley, and boy, was it up my alley. Ben, have you ever heard of Brawl and Cell Block 99? <laughs> No, but it sounds like a straight-to-DVD kind of movie to me. Google it right now. Okay. (laughs) Vince Vaughn. (laughs) Boy, Vince Vaughn, what happened to his career? Here, let me read the description. 
A former boxer loses his job as an auto mechanic and his troubled marriage is about to expire. At this crossroads in his life, he feels that he has no better option than to work as a drug courier. He soon finds himself in a gunfight between police officers and his own ruthless allies. When the smoke clears, Bradley is badly hurt and thrown in prison where his enemies force him to commit acts of violence that turn the place into a savage battleground. On Google, it has how much this thing made at the box office. What is your guess? Box office, how much it made? Six million. Seventy nine thousand dollars. Shut up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Budget four million bucks off of seventy nine thousand. Look at this cast, Ben. You've got Don Johnson, Jennifer Carpenter. You probably don't know the name, but you know the face. This guy Uder Kier, he's like a classic European bad guy. You've got Tom Gurry, the guy from the Sandlot, the kid from the Sandlot. This sounds like a straight to DVD cast to me. Sorry. Okay, I am being completely sincere and unironic here. This is one of the most savage movies I've ever seen. It is of the grindhouse genre. It is extreme violence, but not just for violence sake. I don't like like hostile violence. You know what I mean? Like just torture. I don't like that. I don't like torture porn. If this movie sounds like something that you would like, you will love it. Obviously, you probably don't fit that description of something that you would like. But if you do, out. great movie. Not a good movie. A legitimately kick-ass, awesome, violent, fun movie. Okay. Brawl in Cell Block 99 starring Vince Vaughn. That does not sound like it's going in Ben's queue anytime soon. You're welcome. You talked about City Slickers last week, so I put it on for a little bit. Billy Crystal, they talk about him having a midlife crisis. I assume they're going to be talking about planning his 50th birthday He's party. He's like 39, 39, right? yes. <laughs> How are me and him then and me now and you like in the same age bracket? He looks like he was 50, at least. But isn't it inexplicable to think that like Billy Crystal was a movie star? Like an A-list, A-list? It is kind of hard to believe. But how good was the first hour of that movie? It is good. We finally watched the new Bond, No Time to Die. I hadn't seen it. Doesn't work. It was entertaining. I didn't know about the ending. That was kind of surprised me. I'm surprised I never Way heard about too that. Way too long. Way too long. So James, I know they've made dozens of Bond movies, but like Mission Impossible is objectively a better franchise than James Bond. Ooh, ooh. The recent ooh. movies, I'm sorry. Okay, the fine, new fine, Mission fine, Impossibles fine, fine. are way yeah. more fun than James Bond. I'm sure you could like the old ones. Also, I still think Born Identity is our generation's James Bond. I caught the first half hour of Born Identity the other day. Anytime so you have good. an origin story, that first half hour is so awesome. Two quick kids movies. The Sea Beast on Netflix, my son loved, and Luck on Apple. They pulled a person from Pixar, and they're going to start making movies on Apple. It wasn't that great, but my kids liked it. Finally, one more. Michael Clayton. This is a movie that people I respect with movie opinions love. I've tried to rewatch this movie like three times, and I want to like it, but I just can't get there. You ever had one of those really? movies where you're like, I want to love it, because I know a lot of people love it? It's just kind of like... It's not bad, but it kind of falls flat for me and doesn't really okay, that's like, fair. blow me away. I rewatched it recently, and I do like it. I don't know. I'm just a big George Clooney guy. I could just watch him do okay, almost I, anything. I got one more thing. So we rented a house. Our new thing is we have like my brother has three kids. We have three kids. My parents are a big family. We all want to be in the same place. In the summer, we rent a house. Like There's a bunch of ski hills in Michigan up in the north. So we rent a big ski chalet that's way cheaper in the summer. And they have like water parks and golf or whatever for the summer, even though I don't golf. And so we had this huge house, and in the basement, instead of a pool table, they had a shuffleboard. What do you call it? Shuffleboard board? Whatever. The shuffleboard? No, the handheld one that you have at a bar. So you have the salt oh, on the table. Oh, yeah, yeah, those are great. Okay, I'm going to make the case that shuffleboard is better than pool. If we're talking about like a leisure drinking game, yeah, shuffleboard yeah. It's is more casual. awesome. Yes, I love that game. That should be more prevalent at different bars. I love that great game. Great call. So in conclusion... Brawl in Cell Block 99. <laughs> just, just the name alone. That was a grisly movie. That's how it's, it's grisly. 
Vince Vaughn needs to stick to comedy. Sorry. Agreed to disagree. All right. Send us an email, animalspiritspod at gmail.com, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.